Dreams in every country. Dreams, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. We provide full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners to keep you up to date with new developments in arboriculture. Today's talk is by Nelda Matheny. She is a board-certified master arborist, registered consulting arborist, and horticultural consultant. Nelda is president of Hort Science and Company of Pleasanton, California, a horticulture consulting firm that she started in 1983. This podcast features her talk on tree risk assessment. It was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta, Australia in July 2011. I'm really happy to be here in Australia again. This is our third trip and Jim and I always enjoy it here. I even like the cold weather. You know, it was uh, about 100 degrees. That would be about 37 centimeters. I looked it up. Uh, I mean centimeters centigrade. <laughs> I got the number right, but the unit wrong. Um, when I was packing, so the main issue was think cold, think cold, think cold. All right, well, I'm going to talk with you today about tree risk assessment, what we know and don't know. And this uh, talk is based on um, uh, bibliography that uh, Gemma and I did on tree risk assessment under contract with the ISA. So you're gonna get the results of, um, of that uh, effort. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about the bibliography in terms of um, how many papers, where they came from and that sort of thing. What some of the key papers are you will understand why I can't cover very many in an hour once you see how voluminous the bibliography is and what the research means for arborists, at least the ones that I'm, um, I'm reviewing for you. Now, my first task was to figure out what is this thing that is tree risk assessment. If I'm gonna do a literature review, how do I go about that? So I started with uh, how we define tree risk assessment and the ISA dictionary defines tree risk assessment as the systematic process to identify, analyze, and evaluate tree risk. And if we look towards risk professionals, um, they will define risk as the product of the likelihood times the consequences. So what is the likelihood that 
the tree's gonna fail and hit something. And if it does that, how bad are the things that happen? Now, when you think of scientific literature, uh, you think of experiments and measurements and controls and um, things that are very, very defined. And something that is not well defined at all in this world is risk. How much is too much? How much can we tolerate? How do we balance it with benefits? Um, what we really struggle with as arborists is this likelihood. If we look at a tree, how do we evaluate whether it's likely to fail or not and assign that some kind of a, a relative um, amount to that? A consequences part should be pretty easy because we usually talk about consequences in terms of dollars. But I would like to suggest that we need to think larger than that we can have environmental consequences, social consequences, joy and well-being consequences that we can't put a monetary value on, but fundamentally in many cases are more important to people than the monetary consequences. So here I'm taking this fuzzy feeling, um, kind of personal opinion uh, idea about risk and trying to find some scientific literature that helps us get to risk equals likelihood times consequences. Not an easy task. So what I did was I made a list of topic areas that I thought we could look at. Um, the theory of tree risk assessment, you know, how do we even approach the idea? What are uh, tree failure modes, how do trees fail? We talk about tree branch trunk. What do we know about that specifically? Uh, how do we identify and assess structural weaknesses and strengths? And what information do we have that's quantifiable and reproducible to help us do that? Uh, what are the um, methods of detecting decay and evaluating its significance? Uh, and what, what's the range of uh, those options and what works the best. Uh, what are rating systems and evaluation systems that are available and w which ones are most effective or efficient or uh, reproducible? What are abatement methods that we can apply to reduce risk and what kind of data do we have to tell us really which are most, are most effective? And then what about training and qualifications? What information is available on the best methods to train? What should we train? How do we train? And uh, what outcomes are we looking for in the training uh, in terms of effectiveness and um, reproducibility in the field? and what qualifications go along with that. So those were the things that I was targeting in the beginning. And the um, RFP specifically excluded uh, climbing equipment and climbing methods from that evaluation unless they were specifically related to tree risk assessment.
Now, first of all, I want to go through what is required for a citation to be eligible to go into a bibliography. Um, there are rules about this, and I had to follow the rules. So the rules are that in this collection of literature that um, we, it's, it's composed of research publications. We're going to use publications that are um, uh, focused on arboriculture. Um, that, and I also included silviculture and pomology because that's been way more research than arboriculture than urban trees. And we had to focus on refereed journals. Now, refereed journals, um, I will talk about a little bit more in the next slide. Um, but refereed journals are journals that have been, uh, uh, that the papers that are published in them are re go through a review process. Uh, then we could also use um, books and book sections. We could use conference proceedings as long as there was some review of, um, by the editor of the papers. And we could use government publications as long as those went through some review process. What was excluded was magazines, unpublished conference papers, self-published manuscripts, web pages, and consumer guides. Now the reason those are excluded is because the, the, um, those, uh, even though they're published, uh, they haven't gone through a review process. So that peer review process is really fundamental to how scientists um, separate out good work from mediocre work work that, that they can um, evaluate and say, yes, this was, the experiments were designed properly, the work was done um, according to scientific standards. The, um, they're trying to um, evaluate and prove that that work is valid and it's quality work. So that's what the review process is for. Uh, and in a, um, the, the most rigorous method of peer review is a double-blind process. And the, um, the Arboriculture and Urban Forestry Journal does use a, a double-blind process, and I wanna explain that to you because I think it's really important as practitioners that we know how to distinguish among all of the sources that are available for us for information. So here's the highest, highest uh, form, the double-blind process. So the author submits a, a, a manuscript. This is a process that's used at the AUF. It's, uh, it's sent into the editor-in-chief. The editor-in-chief then looks at the paper and decides what category it's in, what subject it is. And that paper gets sent to um, the subject area associate editor, all right? These people are actually identified inside the cover of an AUF. Um, so if you ever wonder who are the people who are reviewing these, you can look at that. So then the subject matter person sends the paper out to two or more reviewers. 
that that editor thinks is qualified to review the papers. And it's called a double blind process because the reviewer doesn't know who the author of the manuscript is and the author doesn't know who the reviewers are, okay? So you're eliminating the kind of personal bias that might happen in the real world, even with scientists. Then what happens is um, the papers go back through the process. So the reviewers make a recommendation that the paper can be published that it is, the paper can be published with these revisions, or the paper is not worthy of publishing. Okay, it goes back up through the process, eventually getting to the, to the uh, author, and the author can either say, yay, I'm in, oh darn, I have to do a lot more work, or oh my gosh, how could they refuse me? Uh, and you have choice, well, you can improve the paper, to pass scrutiny, or you cannot, you can, or you cannot. All right. So this is why our when you go to the AUF and read a paper, you have assurance that that's pretty good information. You know, other scientists have looked through it and said um, it's done properly, and it's a quality um, that meets our standards. Um, now, the, uh, the, another type of, of publication that we did include is the government publications and um, books. So for instance, many of Alex Shigo's publications are government publications. Now, these also go through a peer review process. However, in, um, in the Forest Service, for instance, quite often the um, authors are able to choose who reviews the papers or the document. So it's not a double blind process, you know, and that's, that makes it less rigorous. You might be surprised to know that books also are not, are, um, not peer reviewed in any rigorous way. So that um, when Jim and I write a book, we put together a review committee. So we pick who we want to look at the book, and usually it's by chapter, and we'll get comments back. So actually, books go through a much less rigorous process to ensure quality and, um, and, and correctness than a um, paper in the AUF. It's easier to write a book than get a paper through the AUF. However, I must say it takes a very long time to write a book. Conference proceedings um, uh, sometimes go through an editorial review process. If those conference proceedings did go through um, some review, we included those papers. Um, an example would be Landscape Yellow Ground that went through some review process. Uh, papers submitted for this particular conference went through no peer review, so we would not be including papers on that CD drive that you got, or CD, unless they have been published somewhere else and gone through some peer review. Trade journals uh, vary a lot in terms of what kind of process they go through. And actually the Arborist News uh, goes through the most rigorous process that I know of for, um, for a 
trade journal, uh, in that articles are peer-reviewed by at least one or two people. So we did include Arborist News. Now, this is not to say that other things you read other places are not valid, are not helpful to you in some way. It just means that they haven't been through the rigor that is considered necessary in scientific world. Okay? And I think it's, it's important for arborists to understand that, to distinguish between the, the, the um, I'm going to use the word rigor again, the rigor uh, with which um, papers are written for different um, media. Um, so that it, what you read in trade journals or online um, may be accurate, but it's mo it, they're usually observational and opinion. And that's fine as long as you recognize it as observations and opinions. Well, we had um, the entire collection I have here is 704, but actually there were over 1,200 papers that I collected and reviewed. But I had, gosh, it was a lot of papers. So I narrowed it down to what I considered the most relevant. So that is 704. 383, about half of those were peer-reviewed. Um, of that, um, there were 78 journals. And um, some journals had many papers, like the AUF. There were many papers represented. But um, most of them were, had only one or two papers regarding tree risk assessment. And they came from all over the world. Uh, Australia, the Czech Republic, Italy, Japan, and so forth. In terms of the type of work, I categorize them by, you know, were they experiments, were they models, and so forth. So about half of the, half of the papers were um, based on experiments. Um, about 20% were models. <coughs> Excuse me. So models take vast amounts of information and try to distill it down into some, some simple tool um, to help understand complex situations. Oops, sorry. Um, surveys are things like going through after a, a windstorm and counting or, or recording what kind of uh, failures occurred professional practice, and literature reviews. Literature reviews, I find, are very handy because the, the, the reviewer has done all the work compiling the information and uh, summarizing it. You just need to remember that you're getting the reviewer's uh, opinion on, on what's most important. Hence, that is my uh, statement for you. Remember, you're getting my opinion on what I want to <laughs> show you today. Uh, in terms of the journals, uh, the um, Journal of Arboriculture, now the AUF, um, certainly had the most publications on tree risk assessment, as it should be. Next in line was the Arboricultural Journal from Britain, and, um, and so forth. They dropped off um, very quickly after that in terms of numbers of papers. Uh, the number one most frequent author 
Representatives uh, Klaus Matic, followed by Alex Shigo, uh, then Brian Kane, Tom Smiley, Alexia Stokes, and uh, this in Francis Forte. This should be an F, not an L, in, in front of uh, for Francis. Then with each paper, um, I identified keywords. So keywords are used so that you can sort through and find papers that have whatever uh, subject matter you're interested in. And um, I made up my own keywords because there wound up being about 10 gajillion if I used the um, keywords that the, um, that the authors provided. So we had um, keyword of decay 124 times. I think this shows you uh, or reinforces the notion that arborists are really concerned about decay. A lot of the papers were about decay and biomechanics and arboriculture. Defect testing, you know, that would be things like <clears throat> using the um, uh, resistance drills or tomography or so forth to evaluate decay. Then if I combine the keyword with arboriculture, then um, we had some um, uh, papers on failure assessment, wind survey and failure. So you can combine these keywords together and get to um, uh, refine more what papers, what kind of uh, subject you're looking for. Well, when I thought about the whole collection, um, I, I, I could kind of organize these into four categories. Tree biomechanics, uh, identification and assessment of structural defects, risk assessment, and risk reduction or abatement. <clears throat> now, we were not equally distributed in how much information was in each of these categories, but that's the general grouping. So I want to talk a little bit first about tree biomechanics. Um, and I forgot to mention from the start is that um, in your conference proceedings it is a copy of a paper I wrote on um, this bibliography and pretty much all this information is in there, including the citations for the papers that I'm going to talk about. <clears throat> so for tree biomechanics, about a third of the papers were um, on the subject and uh, when I went to school in the 70s, before many of you were even born, we had never heard the word biomechanics. We talked about trees as biological organisms. We talked about how water moved around and how they grew. Uh, we did talk about structure in terms of pruning, um, but we didn't apply formulas to it, and we never heard the terms modulus of rupture or applied bending moment or any of that. So that's all relatively new to our, our profession. So what biomechanics does is try to take the, the structural component, the physical engineered kind of uh, part of the tree, and combine that with its biological functions. So it's a whole different way of, of looking at the tree in terms of um, its stability as an engineered structure. Uh, so we've had to learn a lot of new terms and um, 
I think one of the reasons many of our papers are focused on that topic is because it's new to us. We don't know a lot about it in arboriculture. Now, one of the things that um, is prevalent in biomechanics is to create models, as I mentioned earlier, models that take complex interactions and, and, um, and actions and tries to distill them down into something that we can understand. Now, the value of a model is just that, is that it, it brings together a lot of influences and draws a picture for us so it, we can understand it a little better. The disadvantage is that the model is a generalization and an individual tree may or may not conform to the model. And also that models to be really valid need to be tested. And none of the models we're using in arboriculture have been rigorously tested. So we're working with models that are generalizations and yet we're trying to apply them to individual trees and I think we get in trouble when we do that. <clears throat> now most of these models were developed for trees that grow in forest stand conditions. <clears throat> um, Ken James talked about that yesterday. So we see this model of a tree, tree is a pole. And early on in uh, biomechanics literature and forest literature is really heavy on that kind of model of the tree as a pole. And when they, they do these pole tests, they pull on them and let it go, and the thing would flap around like this, you know? And that's what we thought trees did. And uh, eventually, models put branches on trees and but still you know they were modeled as as blocks immovable blocks <clears throat> really wasn't until ken james who looked at um at models a, in a in a more complex way and actually models that corresponded to what he observed and measured um that we i think we got we're getting to understand more about how trees behave in cities or in outside of forest situations in, 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 as individuals. Um, so let's see. The next, and then so the next step from those models is looking at how um, wind affects trees. And again, most of these, probably 99% of these um, studies are on conifer forests coniferous forests. A lot of work done in Britain, uh, in Germany, in Norway, uh, some in Japan, um, and the Pacific Northwest in the U.S., so that in Canada. There's been, this has been intensely studied. And um, there are um, uh, computer models you can use that will calculate for you uh, the likelihood of trees failing under certain conditions. So they're looking for um, what is the maximum wind load before failure starts to occur. And what they find, what they're talking about is, the, is in terms of in the forest, how hard does the wind have to blow before trees start failing? They're not talking about when the wind blows, 
How is that individual tree going to respond? And that's why it's so hard to take this literature and apply it to our work, because the trees are not the same. We have to be really careful about taking literature just because it's published in, and it's been peer reviewed, we need to look under what conditions those trees have grown in and what is the tree structure. Is that tree have anything in common? Does that model have anything in common with the tree I'm looking at on Main Street at Mrs. Smith's house? Uh, a very good review of um, wind effects on trees is this uh, by Kamamura and Shirashi, sorry, Japanese uh, researchers. And if you want to read, to know, understand kind of what the state of art is in wind effects on trees and, and modeling, uh, that's a good place to go. Now, when we started with bringing models to trees, and uh, we really, the uh, um, biomechanics was brought to North American and European um, or British um, arborists by the Germans, by Matic, by Vesely, and um, and um, their cohorts. And these mo their modeling at that time in the night in the nineties was really um, based on statics. So trees were looked at as this solid structure with a sail, and the wind would blow against it, and um, you would calculate what those forces were. Well, that's, we've kind of moved on beyond that to dynamics, and Ken James has talked uh, quite a bit about this. Uh, so dynamic modeling looks at trees as flexible and porous structures and that the wind changes speed and direction. It's not a constant. Now, a good review of kind of the movement from statics to dynamics is in this paper. Uh, and the wind is being described more as in terms of fluid mechanics. <coughs> and this, pap this paper also um, talk talks about, excuse me, talks about how the, wind, uh, how the trees affect the wind. So that, it's a pretty interesting paper. Now Ken James um, says that trees are a complex dynamic system in which branches interact to prevent dangerous way motion developing. And uh, this is the paper. If you haven't read it, you must read that. Um, at it's uh, uh, I, to me, it's a uh, it's a game changer in terms of how I look at trees and how I think about handling trees. Because Ken Ken has taught us now that it's uh, that the branches are very important to tree stability, and we don't want to prune them off. If we prune them off, we make things worse. I mean, in terms of thinning the canopy. Uh, let's talk now about tree failure surveys. Uh, most of these, as I mentioned earlier, are post-storm uh, assessments. This is after a uh, hurricane in Hawaii. 
not a pretty picture. So folks will go out and, um, and um, count how many trees are down, what the species are, what the conditions are surrounding them, and so forth. And a good review of that is this paper and Hurricanes of the Urban Forest. Um, and there are actually two papers, one and two. Uh, and what they find is, found is um, that species is probably the biggest um, variable. So when you're designing your urban forest to be stormproof, you want to take a look at what species survive well. If you have hurricanes, I don't live in a place that has hurricanes, so I'm not worried about that. Um, certainly tree size, the bigger the trees, the more damage usually occurs because you know as, as um, you rise in elevation, wind speed increases, and so a taller tree is exposed to greater wind speeds. Where the tree's located, if it's on a ridge or in a valley or so forth, and how the tree's been managed. Um, Tom Smiley uh, has done some work with um, following hurricanes and found that the most important management factor was whether there was fill over the root collar of the, of the tree or not, whether it failed on whether it failed. Um, so there's good information there, which is not a traditional experiment, but it is a um, uh, observations that have been um, made in such a way that they can be applied to our practice. If the conditions at those sites relate to the conditions at your sites. So while these are interesting, papers for me to read, um, they're all, all of the, uh, these are pretty much from um, Florida, Southeast, and the tropics. They don't apply to where I live because we don't have winds that strong. We don't have those species. So make sure you, you look critically at what are the conditions where the, where, the, where the project was done, and can I use that? Does that apply to where I am? Another type of survey is the um, International Tree Failure Database. This is a cooperative effort by uh, arborists around the world to record um, uh, information about tree fail trees that have failed. And there have only been two papers <coughs> so far published out of this database, actually it was the California database at that time. Um, it says uh, patterns of structural failure in urban trees, coast live oak. Now one of the um, limiting factors to publishing out of the database is that you need enough numbers, enough reports of one species to really do any kind of statistical analysis. I just wanted to show you from um, Roger and Allison's paper and uh, then uh, Roger and Ellison and Larry Costello did another paper, one on Coast Live Oak, one on um, Monterey Pine. But we can get some really good information that I think helps me be a better tree risk assessor from that. So this is uh, Quercus agrifolia, eucalyptus, most, these are mostly blue gums, uh, eucalyptus globulus, and Quercus labata. These are... Um, failures that have occurred primarily in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, 
And then this is the percentage of failures, okay, for that species. And then we're divided into trunk, trunk, did it fail at the trunk, did it, did it fail at the branch, or did it fail at the root, the whole tree fall over. And what's interesting is how different the patterns are for different species. So if we look at Quercus agrifolia, most of the failures are root failures, okay? But for eucalyptus, most of the failures are branch failures. For valley oak, they're about equal. Well, what this says to me is I need to know the plant I'm looking at and how it fails to really evaluate uh, to do a good tree risk assessment. Because on, uh, on eucalypts, most of the failures are gonna be branch failures. I need to spend more time checking out the branches. Okay. Uh, also within this database um, are information about uh, what uh, management factors were associated with that failure or what other characteristics were associated with that failure. One of the re things we record is decay. So here we have the percent of failures having to decay and uh, the location at the trunk, the branch, or the root. And the green bars are for Quercus agrifolia and the blue bars are for, I'm gonna call it eucalyptus globulus because that's mostly what it is. So we can see that for Quercus agrifolia, Decay is really important to assess when we're evaluating failure potential because most of the failures are associated with decay. Uh, in uh, eucalyptus, you know, we have a root, uh, decay is important in root failures, but not in branch failures. So what I think this means for arborists when we see papers like this, is it helps us target our inspections more accurately. If we have information about how they fail and what makes them fail, these failure profiles, we can be better assessors because we know more what to look specifically for. It doesn't mean we ignore all other things, but it, it tells us what we need to look at more carefully. Um, let's move on now to identification of ass assessment of strengths and weaknesses in the tree. I think for arborists in um, the U.S., uh, Klaus Maddox coming to the country and publishing papers about visual tree assessment really changed our practice. And it's not rocket science, but it's certainly a targeted um, um, approach that considers biomechanics in the assessment. So prior to, being, to learning about visual tree assessment, I would look at anomalies and say, oh, that's weird, I wonder why that happens. It never occurred to me to think, well, that would be associated with some specific thing going on in the tree. You know, I was, we talked about biology. We didn't talk about these things. So the, um, Klaus says the manner in which a tree grows reveals the pattern of stress. 
Now there is a lot of literature behind the idea of um, trees adding wood where there are weaknesses, treating trees adding wood to strengthen areas. What we have really no help with is um, determining if that addition is adequate to compensate for the weakness. So here we have a rib that is, uh, has formed because there's an internal crack in the tree. And uh, so we know there's a crack there. Well, is this growth, you know, is it compensating a lot? Is it compensating some? Or is it not doing its job? We don't have any, there's not one paper published on that to help us evaluate the significance of this adaptive growth in terms of strengthening um, trees in a visual tree assessment um, perspective. So uh, it's very frustrating. I've been working on the tree risk assessment uh, BMP with Tom Smiley and Sharon Lilly. <laughs> we want to write something about that, but we don't know what to write. You know, we don't know what to advise. So we know that trees adapt their growth patterns to reduce stress in localized areas, but we don't, and we can see it, but we don't know how, how effective it is, you know, does, how, what percentage of the failure potential will that reduce if it has that adaptive growth? We don't know that. Uh, I wanted to mention a paper that, um, that um, Rooney, Ryan, and Bloniars did on drive-by surveys. And they're very controversial in, um, in the US anyway. Uh, and the BMP and also the, uh, the uh, US um, ANSI standard allow drive-by surveys. So there's been a study about how effective they are. And I think the most important thing to take away from that study is that the drive-by is very slow. It's essentially walking speed. And you have somebody driving and somebody looking, okay? We are not going down 40, 40 miles an hour. You know, this is a very slow thing. And if they could drive on both sides of the tree, they did. But what they found out is that, of course, as in all things, the more severe the defect, the worse, you know, the worse the defect, the more accurate the survey and the drive-by. So, you know, drive-bys, I think you can certainly, um, would be appropriate perhaps after a major storm when you're looking for broken branches, you're looking for, or if you're looking for dead tops, if you're looking for gross defects. Uh, I've seen too many situations where uh, the tree looks fine on one side and has a big, huge cavity on the other <laughs> to feel comfortable myself doing surveys that way. But I understand that when you have thousands of trees to get through in a minimal amount of time, sometimes you do the best with what you've got. So there is support for that 
kind of survey at three kilometers per hour or about two miles per hour. All right, let's move on to decay detection. Remember, a lot of our papers were about decay and about detection. And we have a variety of tools available uh, to um, assess decay. <clears throat> uh, certainly, we've got handheld drills. We have resistance drills. We have time of flight stress waves, stress waves tomography. Um, we have, um, I, I think we are all familiar with the, the tools available, and they keep getting more and more sophisticated. There are not very many papers that, that assess the um, effectiveness of these techniques in, in um, evaluating decay in anything other than a visual way. So in most cases, they'll do the test with the equipment, they'll cut the tree and go, aha, see? And line it up like this. So that's certainly one way to do it, but a more rigorous way is to then take samples out of the tree and take them to the lab and do tests on those samples. Because if we rely on visual uh, only, we are really limiting the accuracy of our evaluation of the, of the decay present. So this is one exception to that. Costello and Quarles um, did a, uh, they compared they did an evaluation of using a handheld battery-operated drill um, and a uh, resistograph on elm, and I forget which species, I think it was American elm, and on um, eucalyptus globulus. And um, actually what they found is that using a handheld operated drill was almost just pretty, pretty much as, um, as accurate if the, if the person operating the drill knew what he was doing. Pretty much as accurate as the resistograph was. And I was actually part of the study, and I can tell you that the elms were way easier than the blue gums. Even the blue gums, I think it was about 75 or percent accurate, whether you're using the resistograph or handheld. Blue gum is just a difficult, a difficult tree to uh, do decay detection on. Uh, I was really surprised in doing the bibliography at how much research support and is behind um, the acoustic uh, methods. It very well established, and it's because of the Forest Service developed technology to, the U.S. Forest Service um, adapted that technology to um, evaluate, to, to detect decay in uh, lumber, in trees before they cut them, uh, before they saw them up. And so a whole lot of research went into that. And I think it's, I, I came to believe that's a really good method of decay detection in our trees. Uh, a good paper on this is uh, Wang and uh, Bruce Allison um, in, they're in Michigan, I think. And um, Wang is with the Forest Products Laboratory. He has done a lot of the original research on acoustic 
methods for um, assessing decay. And Bruce Allison is an arborist. And they actually found that, um, that it's best to use a combination of methods. Um, and so they used a, a, a single path, um, a single path uh, stress wave equipment to determine if a, if a defect was present. Well, they did a visual first. And then it, if there was, if the visual analysis indicated, yes, we think there's a defect, they would use a single path acoustic uh, instrument to confirm that that was there. And then they would use the uh, acoustic tomography. I can't remember, I think they were using a picus to, um, to evaluate the size of that defect. And what they found is that the, uh, with the t tomography, that the defect area on the, tom on the picture, the tomograph, um, was generally larger than the actual decay in the tree. And I want to emphasize that they didn't just do a visual, cut down the tree and visual, they actually took the samples and went back to the lab. Forest products people know how to do this right. Um, but that the, tom the tomography couldn't, t couldn't reveal the difference between cracks and decay. Uh, they also recommended that um, after you've done this and determined that there's a, a defect there, if you need to know how much that defect is, to use a resistance drill to um, confirm that. One paper I didn't get in here, but I need to, I'll mention it right now, is by uh, Francis Swarsha. And it was regarding the um, effects uh, of um, decay, whether decay can spread into soundwood from, um, from, resist from holes. And they actually found the decay propagation was greater with the resistance drill than with an increment bar. Not something we want to hear, is it? Okay, so we have a gazillion ways, when you come down to it, of assessing whether there's decay there or not, or identifying if there's decay there or not. Not only do we have visual clues, you know, we have a variety of testing materials. But then it comes down to, well, what does that mean? And here is the problem, isn't it? Do we, what does it mean? Is that too much? Is that too much? What are we gonna do about that? So there have been um, several formulas developed to um, help us determine strength loss. Now that strength loss is in quotes because Brian Keane says we're not really measuring strength loss. We're measuring loss of inertia. So the two primary types are the, based on the bending stress of a hollow cylinder, demonstrated here by my daughter with the Mountain Dew can, and the buckling failure of a cylinder, T over R, uh, which is a collapse by self-weight, essentially. And um, there's a lot of debate about about using these, and thresholds have been de developed. Um, but the thresholds have been developed by looking at failed trees 
and measuring, doing these calculations, I was gonna say, uh, and then making something less than that a threshold, okay? So if you're gonna use those, make sure you understand the conditions under which those trees failed. And I showed one, one time I showed some data about showing, you know, tree failure and the, um, and the um, strength loss value. And uh, it was during a hurricane. And I, I said to the audience, so why did these trees fail? And the guy said, because the wind was blowing really hard. <laughs> and it's true. We don't really know at which point the trees fail because it was really hard, blowing really hard or because of decay. We don't know where, we still don't really know where that is. So these, um, these calculations are based on the model of modeling a tree as a pipe. And there becomes the problem for us because trees aren't pipes. And any model simplifies things so much that we lose the details that are important sometimes. So the details that are important to us are, you know, what's the wood? It's not, wood is not steel, it's not, it's not homogeneous and so forth. And also the, for these to work, that hollow has to be in the center of the pipe, okay? Now Brian Kane did this fabulous paper. I don't understand why we're still people arguing about the effectiveness of, of these, of these um, uh, calculations because Brian Kane already solved all that a long time ago. So take a look at this, this is really cool. So here we have the strength loss from our loss in inertia on this axis from zero to 100. Here is the percentage of hollow in the cross section. And so Brian has plotted out um, for different arrangements of the decay what that strength loss is, okay? So here, if the tree is hollow, it's, the tree is generally circular, pretty circular, and the hollow is in the center, this is the, this is the, the graph we get. So, you know, if we're looking at the magic number of say 30% hollow, 30% uh, strength loss, or let's just do 50 because it's easy, then um, the tree would have to be, I don't know, 80% hollow. Now, if that hollow is located on one side and the tree isn't, you know, so that it's not in the center, which quite frankly, how often do you see them like this? You see them more like that. Then this is the shape of the graph. So at 50% hollow on this one, we've lost maybe 40% 40, 40 of the strength. At 50% hollow on this one, we've only lost maybe 10% of the strength. Now, if we have a large part of the shell missing, which this is, happens a lot, doesn't it? Because otherwise we may not know the hollow's even there. Then this is the graph you get. So if we are 50% hollow in this kind of situation, we have lost 60% of the strength. 
So Brian says it's more important, more, it's more important where the decay is than how much decay there is. If you don't take anything else home from, from my talk, I would like you to take this home. That, that we're measuring the wrong things and we're not applying the right models. Okay, so uh, fundamentally research has yet to confirm that any formula accurately represents trunk strength loss, nor has a critical load threshold been determined. Now, when I, when I say things like critical load, um, I'm reminded of Ken James always saying, what we wanna know is it's strong enough, not its failure point, is it strong enough? And I hope someday we know that. Okay, let's move on to something other than decay. Let's look at codominant stems. <clears throat> so um, Brian Kane did this really interesting study, tree pulling tests of large shade trees in the genus Acer. Um, it's where he took, he, he took these trees, how big were they? Half a meter in diameter and um, pulled, pulled on them and broke them. They are with codominant stems. So he's trying to find out what's that strength. And he found that co failure of codominant stems required one half the stress of stem failure. Now, this, what this paper says to me is we sure concentrate a lot on trunks and you know, doing pull tests or testing decay in them, when really what I see failing mostly is codominant stems. And, you know, branches with, with, whether they're the, at the trunk or higher in the tree. I think we need to start looking at the things that fail the most. Um, and this is the only paper I found really on codominant stems. So it doesn't take nearly as much of a wind or a rain or whatever force to break this kind of configuration than to break a, a trunk that is single, and so we need, really need to understand how, how the differences in the strength of those of those um, attachments. I want to talk a minute about the risk. What really is the risk? I, we've kind of gone overboard about our fear of trees and their failure, and if we look at, uh, there's not a whole lot of data available. Uh, one study, though, by, uh, by uh, Schmidlin, he's, who is not an arborist, he is a, um, I guess you call him a climatologist, he studies wind. He looked at um, how many people in the U.S. had died because of um, failure of trees during winds. And he, he found 407 over this period of time, it's about 30, 31 um, deaths per year, which is very, very low compared to things we volunteer to do every day, like get on the freeway. But I think what's really interesting about this is where people were, where they were killed. And they were in their cars. Most of them were in their cars. And um, mobile homes is not the place to be. I think that's incorrect. I think this is 2%. Mobile homes, do not live in a mobile home. If you live over here, do not live in a mobile home. 
or in Seattle. So what I learned from this, what I learned from this is I'm glad I don't live, I don't live or work in Seattle <laughs> or east of the Mississippi. Mississippi's right along here. You know, we don't have many problems in there. Also, we don't have many people, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, Arizona and New Mexico are looking pretty good to me right now. No, I'm just kidding. They don't have big trees either. Um, I think that we do tend to overinflate in our mind um, how, how um, much risk is involved, actually risk is involved around trees. Okay, I am jumping here to uh, another thing that Brian Kane said is, I'm sorry, Arbus, but we are practicing in a scientific void. Uh, that doesn't mean we have to stop practicing. It just means that we need to stay current as much as we can. We need to be the best scientists we can, the best practitioners we can. And fundamentally, tree risk assessment is a matter of judgment. And that judgment is not just a gut feeling or uh, something that um, we just come up out of thin air. Judgment is based on observations, investigations, and testing data and information. And we combine that with our experience, training, knowledge, and education to formulate an opinion. And unfortunately, we are in a place in our profession that we don't have a whole lot of data and evidence to support our judgments. But if we have to be comfortable with that or we have to get out of the business, as far as I'm concerned, uh, we need to do the best job we can with what we've got and remember to help people balance their feelings about risk with the benefits they get from trees. Thank you very much. This concludes Nelda Matheny's discussion on tree risk assessment. If you would like to learn more about tree risk assessment, you can find additional materials at the Online Learning Center and the ISA Web Store, including the new Tree Risk Assessment Best Management Practice, a book that Nelda Matheny co-authored. If you would like to receive CEUs for today's talk, the code for the quiz is SA6709. Again, SA6709. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas, producer of this series, at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this series on iTunes or directly through the ISA, and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.